Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Another big week for Wall Street. The number of parked aircraft grows as ticket prices drop, Boeing's delivery and production numbers, and the decision by the company to tap the former head of naval nuclear reactors as its chief quality advisor after that mishap with an Alaskan Airlines 737-9, Britain's bilateral security pact with Ukraine, and a second B-21 flight. Joining me today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Guys, uh, welcome back. Uh, Sash, uh, welcome back as well. It's good to have you uh, as part of the team again. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off. Walk us through the market. Another gangbuster uh, week. A lot of folks trying to talk the market down, clearly indicating that some people have bet maybe the wrong way and need the market to go down and make money on on some of their longer term investments. I put Jamie Dimon as a market maker in that, right? Somebody who's consistently trying to talk it down. There was a Barron story uh, as well out there. Oh, you got to indemnify yourselves. Okay, that's part of investing. Uh, anyway, walk us through how the market behaved, where we are, where we're going and what it meant for the group. Yeah, sure. I mean, the S&P was up uh, about a little over 1%, 1.2%. Now, if you look across our group, you know, Boeing was down one and a quarter, Northrop was down two and a quarter, Lockheed was down one and a quarter, uh, GE was down two and a quarter. Broadly, um, the, the A&D sector was down. Um, some of the um, more higher volatile um, small names and are kind of tied back to SPACs, uh, some of those were up. But to give you a feel for what's going on in the market, uh, and I think this is important because the, our sector doesn't trade by itself. Uh, if you look at some of the big tech names, uh, you know, Meta was up uh, almost two and a half percent. Apple was up three uh, you percent. Know, Google was up a bunch. NVIDIA was up almost nine percent. So uh, there's some rotation going on right now. And, and uh, some of the tech high flyers that actually account for a lot of market cap Um are where we've seen some money flow. So that's, you know, the, the market has done quite well, but that doesn't necessarily mean our sector has done well relative to right. the market in other sectors. Um, when you look at uh, interest rates, the 10 year, uh, it's been you know about 4.1, 4 4.2%. That's where it's been. It's been there for a while. Looks like it's going to be there for a while. Uh, you know, the ever-friendly VIX index that we track, it's hanging out around 13. Again, bottom of the range in terms of, Kind of fear and loathing in the market, uh, and then oil uh, WTI at uh, seventy three bucks, uh, and give me one guess, Brent's five dollars more at seventy eight bucks, and they've been in that range now for for quite some time. So, if you look at you know, where uh, uh, discount rates are in the market, the ten year and oil, it's kind of pointing to a, a relatively stable market condition, uh, and and I would interpret you know the rotation uh, into uh, you know, tech over maybe industrials as, you know, the market just taking a more bullish stance. Like you mentioned, there's, there's folks who are always saying, yeah, you know, got to be careful, so on and so forth. So we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. But um, this earnings that's going to happen, you know, this earnings period that really starts in full force over the next couple of weeks, I think will be really important about companies' outlooks and, and so on and so forth. And maybe we'll see some market adjustments after that in, in terms of sectors. But um, for now, this is where we are. 
Um, and uh, what about the budget uh, deal? Uh, ultimately, what impact did that have on the market, if if any? Right. I mean, it looks like we're going to have a short term CR. Um, you know, in order to get to those appropriations deals, uh, right in March, around the time of the um, uh, president's State of the Union address, um, it clears the way for uh, a, you know, kind of a, the budget uh, also to get moving and to get submitted to Congress. But then there are concerns about the Ukraine supplemental. Walk us through these dynamics and how they're playing uh, on the street, because it the hopes are fading for a Ukraine uh, supplemental as Republicans, you know, recognize they have a campaign issue. They don't want to help Ukraine anyway. And they're sort of digging their heels in. So now that 65 billion doesn't look as likely as it, it may have even a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. We didn't get a lot of questions on it. I mean, Boeing. Um has just sucked all the wind out of the room, uh, Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems for all the reasons we've discussed. Um, you know, that that being said, uh, getting the CR, I think, was positive. Uh, there were some folks that I think were expecting maybe we would see um, a short-term shutdown. Uh, we hosted a, a call this week with uh, uh, Major General retired uh, John Ferrari. Uh, uh, he's at the American Enterprise Institute today, among other things. Uh, and, you know, in, in his opinion, and I, and, and I think I have to agree with John, in the end, it'll all kind of work out um, that when it's all said and done, there'll be some noise and machinations on the Hill. But when it's all said and done, we'll get the 886 billion baseline and we will get the supplemental that will fund everything. There's going to be a lot of noise and pain to get there, but ultimately we'll get there. Now, you know, that being said, we, we haven't had a lot of questions on it on, on, you know, from investors. Really, the, the real focus uh, has been uh, Boeing. Um, and, and we're going to get to that uh, in a minute. Obviously, it was all the big headlines. And unfortunately, it has been uh, big headlines for us kind of across the piece for uh, some time. Sash, welcome back. Uh, give us a sense on sort of European market performance, right? I mean, some, what some of the broader economic drivers are and how the group is performing against uh, against those drivers. Yeah, um, I mean, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of concern in terms of the European sector about just the broader macro issues. How strong is the uh, civil aerospace recovery and indeed how deliverable is it there were thousands of new aircraft ordered last year how realistic is it that those are going to be delivered um within even within a five-year period um doesn't doesn't feel as if the market has a lot of confidence that a production rate ramp at boeing airbus or both and indeed through the aero engine companies is actually credible at the moment so you know airbus was flat on the week um Defence, there's been some very, very uh, divergent performance among defence companies. Part of that, I think, is that there is a degree of caution among investors about which companies are benefiting or not benefiting from broad European rearmament, um, where the upside is. So you know, as an example, Dassault Aviation, which is predominantly um, uh, a defence you know, combat aircraft business, but clearly with a very, very big um, I mean, Europe's only major bizjet company. And Dassault shares were down 10% last week, um, pretty much because the market looked at the tranche five uh, contract for Rafale and said, meh, you know, we knew that was coming. And also, by the way, we, we come back to about this later, Falcon isn't performing very well at the moment. That was the biggest fall. I think that dragged Talis down a bit as well. Talis was down 6%. On the other hand, um, uh, Kinetic which is not performing well in terms of its US business, but announced a share buyback, that was well received. It, it was up 6%. So net, you know, we had um, civil stocks, you know, flat to up and defense stocks off about a, uh, a percent or so. Um, and I think the market really is now waiting for results to start in a month or so to get a, um, 
you know, to work out how optimistic or how confident companies are about their 2024 and their guidance beyond that. Uh, is is how is the the delays in the U.S. sort of pressing ahead with that Ukraine aid uh, impacting the situation? You know, I was on a call uh, last week with a Ukrainian leader, and the situation is remarkably dire, a lot more dire, I think, than people realize, right? Je- October 7 took all the attention and put it on Israel, whereas these strikes, as we heard uh, at Ron's conference uh, from a, a Ukrainian leader who joined us there, the situation is very, very dire. They're running out of ammunition, and as a consequence, they're losing troops uh, because of it. And this is seen as an important bellwether sign. Will the United States stand by its allies and partners? How is that this slowness in getting aid? And by the way, the Europeans aren't breaking any records either uh, on this. UK deserves credit for striking that deal with Ukraine. How is all of this being perceived there? There is a broad concern that the US, uh, and, but, but it's a, it, this is sort of low, uh, low level, and it, you know, it's like Voldemort, you can't really say its name. Um, but there is this broad concern that the US is not a, uh, is not going to be a reliable ally to Europe, and is and signs of this are the uh, cessation of aid, apparent cessation of aid to Ukraine. Um, so politicians are starting to have to think what for seventy years has been the unthinkable, which is how how is Europe going to um, cope? How are we going to uh, afford to defend ourselves in the event that um, you stop uh, being a member of NATO either, uh, you know, de facto or or by withdrawing, um, you know, because uh, after the elections next year. And if that's the case, you know, defence budgets are going to go up a ton. Uh, taxes are going to go up similarly. And politicians just don't want to talk about that at the moment, particularly when there are elections in Europe, UK, Germany in particular, but um, there's plenty of, Euro- of of elections going on. It's a really, really unpleasant thing for politicians to have to have to go on the, on the stump and say, by the way, taxes are going to have to go up because we're going to have to defend ourselves. But that that's what's being thought about now. Um, and I think the, you know, the, the interesting issue here is going to be uh, if we assume, hope, that five years time, um, the US comes back and says, actually, things have changed. And, you know, we, we do want to have a North Atlantic alliance and we are prepared to, to fund it. And, you know, freedom in Ukraine is uh, part of freedom for, for Europe. I think things will have changed dramatically by then because I think European countries are going to have to have started, you know, not only spending themselves, but they're going to have to start producing stuff in Europe because a lot of European countries will not be, feel they can necessarily depend on the US to supply the spares, the repairs, the, you know, the, the, the new equipment in the future. This is, this is one of the, you know, if, if, if this pro- process continues, um, going to be really hard to go back. Uh, and what about the UK-Ukraine uh, agreement? Two point five billion in additional aid at a time when Ukraine could use it. UK has always been a leader when it's come to open the door for new capabilities, whether it was anti-air, whether it was anti-armor, or even in uh, the case of uh, manned uh, aircraft. Um, and you know, British troops never left; they redeployed in the country. Um, the Russians have made a lot of noise about. Um, you know, retaliating in the event there are British troops, but but the UK has sort of shown a lot of courage in this, and sort of gone ahead and done things anyway. Uh, ultimately, um, what does this deal mean, and what does it mean uh, both in a European context, but also uh, do you think, since we're on the topic of Ukraine, uh, what it means for UK continuing UK support for Ukraine? Uh, last question first: continuing use, um, UK support for Ukraine is a bipartisan policy in the UK. The 
shadow foreign secretary David Lammy and in, in the opposition uh, Labour Party, you know, put out a statement just saying, you know, Labour's and hence the UK's support for Ukraine is, uh, you know, uh, unquestionable, inalienable. It's going to continue no matter what. So, you know, at a time when uh, we're building up for what could well be a pretty messy election, um, policy on Ukraine does not seem to be something that anybody wants to uh, downplay in any way whatsoever. Um, what's interesting about the um, UK-Ukraine agreement, I mean, having now read it, it's very detailed. It's very prescriptive. It's very long term. So, I mean, you know, it focuses on what does it need to uh, bring Ukraine into NATO and what can the UK do about it? I mean, I haven't seen any other countries put together a uh, an agreement of this scale and an agreement, agreement of this detail uh, before. Um, you know, what does the UK and you, what can the UK and Ukraine do to counter Russian grey area operations? And what fascinating about that is it focuses on cyber, but it also focuses on organised crime and the degree to which the, the Russians use organised crime as a means of undermining uh, Western societies and Western capabilities. Um, cyber is clearly, you know, has has uh, a broad spectrum of civil and military context. It talks about building up the Ukrainian defence industry. Um, I think that this will be one of the issues that will be uh, a real differentiator for companies and their exposure to Ukraine over the next two to three years. Are they starting to produce stuff in Ukraine, in which case they will become embedded in uh, the Ukrainian defence buildup? Or are they just going to continue to ship stuff out from whatever country they're in now? In which case that can be turned off politically, turned off economically. And that's probably slightly lower, lower quality. But the, you know, the focus on building up the Ukrainian defence industry, and we're seeing this in um, uh, companies in uh, Sweden uh, and Germany as well, are really starting to, to look at big uh, industrial uh, footprints in, in Ukraine. I think that's, in, that's incredibly important. And then, as you say, you know, the UK is not going to admit to having, you know, that the headline is troops on the ground in Ukraine. Right. Absolutely fine. But um, the UK never withdrew all of its military presence. Um, I think in a previous age, we would, we would, we would refer to them as advisors. Um, the UK is providing a degree of air defence over Western Ukraine out of Poland uh, at the moment, with um, because that was part of defending uh, the Ukrainian-Polish uh, border at the very beginning of all this. Um, are we going to see UK, you know, British soldiers on the front line in Ukraine? Probably not soon. But I, I, you know, I think the the UK's commitment to, uh, to Ukraine is is deepening considerably, and is it, you know, there's quite an interesting challenge there to other European. Uh, countries to keep up with it. I'd say the other U European country that is really doing well in this regard is Germany. Uh, you know, German aid to Ukraine, and you know, more of it is economic. But um, you know, German aid to Ukraine is very, very uh, intense indeed. And and indeed, the EU once they can get past uh, Mr. Orbán in in Hungary. Uh, but there are other countries, other very, very large countries. You know, not far away from the UK that that could do a lot, uh, a lot more than this. Um, I think what what this agreement is about is saying. You know, this is what we're doing. Everybody else now show us. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, Rishi Sunak deserves a lot of credit for going there and signing that deal uh, in in person. Uh, and uh, uh, again, the UK has shown a sense, uh, you know, a leadership, uh, leadership on this and also making the case our agreement is with a sovereign state. It's not up to Russia whether or not to like that agreement or not. Richard, yeah. let me 
uh, let me bring you uh, into this. We went a bit longer on that than, than I had planned. Give us give us your sense on the entire Ukraine aid package and what's really at stake from from your standpoint and reading of this before we then transition to the commercial part of the discussion, because I know you want to take a bite at this as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course, no, no major disagreements with everything said, you know, obviously, it's, it's, it's crucial, but I think so much depends upon the next US election. I mean, as, as Sash indicates, you know, the prospect of NATO having to gear up for a much higher level of industrial production, and to live in a world where the US is simply not part of NATO. There's also the very real prospect that US sanctions wind down uh, on Russia. Uh, in the event of a Trump victory, uh, that has all kinds of implications, including a you know a much greater level of Russian defense output that would be conceivable. You know, all of a sudden, semiconductors and whatever else could be imported or at least not monitored as closely as they're being today. You'd probably have a return of Russian defense exports after a couple of years hiatus. Uh, you know, looked like a permanent collapse, but maybe they'll be back. Uh, so I think there are all kinds of implications, less about the EU organizing itself and circumventing uh, Orban's restrictions and more about the U.S. election. I think that's that's really the, the key thing here. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, the question of aircraft and air travel. Right. Uh, Ron uh, and his team had a great note about parked uh, aircraft going up. Uh, compared to where we were in 2019. Obviously, that was the last big year and everybody's been competing to try to beat it in some respects we did. Uh, but now, you know, air ticket prices are coming down. Walk us through some of the dynamics we're seeing and and what does it mean for production and delivery? Maybe ramp us, uh, no pun intended, into, the, into some of the numbers from Boeing on deliveries and production and what all of this means in a, in a macro uh, picture. No pun intended, indeed. Um, you know, it, in... In addition to all of the rather good news associated with the uh, park jets, except for freighters, freighters are a concern that uh, maybe people went a bit overboard in the, uh, you know, the, oh my God, people will always want this level of cargo supply that we're seeing in the pandemic. We'd better gear up. You know, clearly there's a bit of an overhang there, but every other indicator is pretty strong. One thing I'd draw your attention to is uh, just what, at the end, when the smoke paid 3,400 net new orders last year. That's incredible. So book to bill in the, you know, greater than, I guess, two to one ratio. Um, that's really wonderful. Um, now, of course, a lot of it is people saying, okay, well, let's lock in good deals. Let's get in line. And most of all, what was what was sort of fascinating, the big number, a uh, an absolute record number of A321neo orders uh, in large part, kind of a direct response to Dave Calhoun saying, don't worry, we won't be doing anything. So get in line for an A321neo. And everyone did exactly that. Uh, there were 1,300 Neo, A321neo orders last year, just directly following Calhoun's announcement. But uh, in general, you know, very strong demand. And most of the airlines have been saying it doesn't look like things are slowing down. As you mentioned before, the only people who seem to be betting on a recession are people who seem to have bet the other way in the stock market. Everyone else seems to think oh, it's pretty, you know, never say never, but it's looking pretty good here for avoiding a recession. Delta came out the other day and said international traffic demand growth looks extremely strong. Um, and I, you know, assuming that this is all as good as it looks, then you've got a pretty, well, you've got a situation where yet again, we have a problem on the supply side, not on the demand side. That's going to continue. One of the most common questions we get from clients and new one is just, you know, to what extent is this unusual set of affairs going to continue? To what extent is it guaranteed to continue? 
I think it's a fair bet unless there's some kind of shock like a war or, you know, another global pandemic or something that we've got, you know, at least a three to four year time horizon where what matters is getting the supply chain together and demand will very definitely be there for whatever is built. A quick word from our sponsors. The Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications are brought to you by Bell, HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Um, Ron and then Sash, your guys' uh, take on on sort of traffic and and delivery before we go to uh, the announcement that Admiral Kirk Donald, uh, the former uh, Naval Nuclear Reactors uh, boss, uh, highly respected submariner engineer and officer and American, uh, taking his role as as a quality advisor at Boeing. But first, talk to us a little bit about uh, the numbers uh, and and what what you guys think it means. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Richard made some really good points. Um, the thing that's, I think, almost mind-numbing, um, and, and Sash can correct me on these numbers, if you look at Airbus's backlog of um, A321 family airplanes, it's about over 10,000 to 11,000, um, and nearly 70% of those, or maybe 70% of those, are A321s. And if you look at the backlog of 737s, I think it's running right now around 4,500. So Airbus has in backlog more A321s than Boeing has 737s in backlog. Um, and to Richard's point, I mean that that just that just says a lot. On the on the air travel front, um, things are just kind of normalizing to normal, right? Revenge traffic or revenge travel is largely over. Um, business travels back. I know myself and Richard. And, um, I'm not sure what your travel schedule is this week, Vago or Sash, but we're all kind of kind of back to doing what we were doing before, um, you know, the pandemic. So so here we are. Um, there's a cyclicality uh, annually to air traffic, right? Uh, there's a, a low season and high season. We're just getting back to that. Um, have airlines, you know, order too many airplanes uh, or not in different regions of the world, maybe even in the U.S.? Maybe. We'll see. But to Richard's point, um, and, and, I, and I like to make this point to to investors, when Boeing had its, uh, its last strike, uh, it took nearly three years to recover from that. And that was a one-quarter shutdown. If you look at the shutdown on the 737 line, it was nearly 18 months, and then the 787 also shut down. The, the recovery from that in the backdrop of a challenged workforce, meaning not disparaging the workforce, but a workforce that just isn't as experienced as previous workforces have been at different times in history, um, it's just going to take a long time for all this to recover, and, and there's, there's just no way around it. Um, uh, anyway, that's my two cents. I, I've got very little to add to, to what uh, Ron and Richard said. I just want to um, come back to this issue of grounded aircraft again. And grounded aircraft, low ticket prices in the States, actually, you know, a lot of, lot of tickets on sale over here in Europe as well. Put this into perspective. Um, the airline industry is going to lose a minimum of 350, 400 uh, narrow bodies um, for most of this year because of the, gra- the problems with the Pratt uh, PW1100G a turbofan you know those air, those engines 1200 odd engines are going to be uh pulled off uh inspected repaired where necessary and so the um i, you know, I think a reasonable expectation when that uh, whole issue blew up uh last july um and again at the q3 results was that um the shortage of capacity caused by this involuntary grounding of a320s uh would actually be pretty good for the industry because it would keep it would keep demand for spares up it would keep demand for overhauls of old engines 
it would keep a lot of older aircraft in the air that otherwise might not have been. Well, you know, we spill forward six months and actually we're seeing a lot of grounded aircraft. You wouldn't ground aircraft now um, unless you're pretty sure you're going to have no need for them at all in the uh, in the second and third quarters, because it's a it's a big process, you know, biggish process. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's actually much more bearish given what we know about uh, capacity and what I were concerned about, which is that uh, Airbus and Boeing may not be able to ramp as much as they expected in the first first half anyway. Um, so why put these aircraft on the ground? That's a it's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't know the answer, but it it seems to me you know this is not a positive uh, you know positive indicator for uh, for the airline industry. Look, Ron and Ron and Richard to to that point real quick before we we go to the Boeing quality thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Sash raises a fantastic point. Um, and, and my guess is if you were to hold some of the major airlines to the fire on what they've ordered, they might say, hey, it's okay if it slips a little bit. would be my guess. Um, you know, and, and we're getting back to, you know, it's, it's amazing how you see this again and again and again in markets, right? right. During the pandemic, everybody's going to work at home and never going to go back to the office. Well, no, we're going to go back to the office. In the pandemic, you know, you know, flying business travel is not going to come back. Eh, it did. If you go back in history, right? We, we we've all seen this. Remember after September 11th, then eh, nobody's going to fly, and then we all flew. Um, so we're just, you know, my take, we're just normalizing, right? So, um, and you just have to get used to, you know, you know, the old boring way things used to be, where there was like, you know, cyclical up, cyclical down, right. you know, good quarters, bad quarters, that kind of thing. By the way, I would uh, point out that. Uh, Jeff Zients, uh, the president and chief of staff, has put a memo out to federal agencies saying you guys got to be back to work at least three days a week um, because we're not being as effective as we could be with people uh, working and, and in some cases entirely remo uh, remotely working. I, I have a theory. Everybody makes choices. You could choose to live nearby where you work or you could work, live very far away. That's your choice. Um, and And that's not the really your employer's problem or like anything you need to be compensated for that that was your choice you you know cho chose to live 50 miles away 60 miles away 100 miles away uh right which many people did in the pandemic we sold our house in the suburbs and we moved you know to the mountains okay now you have to drive to and from the mountains every day i mean that that was your that was your choice uh richard any last thoughts on this before we go to um, the uh, uh, Kirk Donald's uh, selection by Boeing? Yeah, you know, I mean, just before we all hit for the exits here, I mean, yes, uh, well observed, but on the other hand, remember that retirements collapsed during the pandemic and scarcely recovered since. I think last year should have been a much better year than it was for retirements, but they only rose like, what, I don't know, 15% or something. Not very much. Uh, in other words, what you could be seeing is a bunch of planes that should have been retired a while ago, either because of uh, irrelevance, fuel inefficiency, or just because they're coming up on a D-check after 20-something years, just basically being parked now. I mean, it doesn't mean slack demand. It might not mean the most robust demand, although then again, you know, seasonal adjustments. This isn't exactly summertime here. Uh, it might be a good time to start thinking about parking some of these folks that arguably should have been grounded some time ago. And God knows we've all been on planes that, you know, why is this still a thing? You know, a uh, a model 1999 A3, A319, why is this still flying again? You know, so I think you're prob probably seeing some of that as well. 
uh, MD-80s, uh, who doesn't like coming on and going like, wow, three on one side, two on the other. How old? You know, I don't know about you. We're both on the flight path. We're, we're close to a flight path here, but it's been a long time since I've heard a JT-8D go overhead. I, although I have sound heard sounds that are kind of like a JT-8D, but that thing was distinctive, right? Yeah, it was. It was. Although I do have to say, great airplane, wide aisles, and so quiet uh, that, you know, the ear pods of the person sitting next to you could really irritate the crap out of you if they're playing their music loud. That's how quiet the airplane is. Uh, kudos, McDonnell Douglas. Speaking of which, it's a nice transition uh, to uh, uh, Boeing. Uh, and I think we've discussed on this program how, unfortunately, a McDonnell Douglas mindset seems to have infected uh, uh, Boeing. And this has been a story that's developed over the last three decades, two and a half a decade since 1998, unfortunately, uh, at one point lauded uh, that the Seattle company was coming into the modern age of financial management. And here it is where we find ourselves. Ron, uh, start us off. Kirk Donald, a consummate engineer, uh, somebody who knows quality, knows manufacturing processes because of the intimate involvement. I think for anybody who doesn't understand uh, naval reactors, it is a unique organization. Uh, it was founded by Hyman Rickover uh, and has complete oversight over the engineering, the production, the selection of people, the training of people, uh, and all inculcated to the highest quality standards because Hyman Rickover understood even in the early 1950s, we have one nuclear accident and we're finished. So we have to have a zero defect mentality um, and be almost a religious commitment uh, to quality and making sure there are no loose bolts and uh, and and a discipline process that's also very iterative, right? So anybody who thinks it is a complete bunch of rigid lunatics is is not true. NR does adapt with technology, does devolve authority, uh, and is always looking for 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 good and new ideas. Uh, so for some, he is as ideal a selection as you could have uh, if you want to inculcate quality. On the other hand, it also sends some signals, including in the company, hey, none of you were good enough to to come to this. What what's your sense? How is it seen optically, and how does it move a needle? You know, in 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 an actual sense, and I want to go around the the the, the horn with everybody. I guess I would start with the the, the biggest questions we got when the announcement was made. Um, who is this guy? Right? I mean, the you know the the investor community wasn't very familiar with with him, um, and that's you know is what it is. Uh, they don't have to be familiar with everybody. Um, as you point out, you know, the nuclear Navy is a, is a pretty awesome organization. And I was never in the Navy, but um, you just kind of hear from surface warfare folks if um, uh, nuke folks end up on their watch. It's always kind of a pain. Um, so, yeah, clearly. In a, in a good way, in a good way. But anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, in a good way, but maybe in a bad way if you're not used to it. Right. Um, so you have somebody who, who understands you know, the implications of not having quality. Um, you have someone who understands it in a maritime environment. Um, you know, I'm not 100% familiar with um, what the Admiral's done, you know, since the Navy. Um, uh, you know, presumably he's worked on some other things. Um, I don't know what he knows about aircraft manufacturing or not um, and the supply chains and how it all works. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it's, it's I, I would suppose, a move in the right direction sends a signal, but it also sends a signal. And you you pointed out, and I, I guess the nuance to me is a little bit different. Not that there wasn't anybody inside the company that was good enough to do this. This is a hundred year old, over a hundred year old airplane company, right? Um, built 
thousands of airplanes during World War II. Um, they should understand how to build airplanes. They should understand um, variations in the workforce and how to handle that over time. Um, I mean, ultimately, they they should be able to write an encyclopedia on it. So the bigger question for me is, why do they need this in the first place? Um, and ultimately, as you pointed out, I think you have to understand kind of how you got here to kind of get out of this mess. Um, what I do think is good, right, is you know, before you, you solve an issue, you have to recognize you have an issue. Right? I think this is is recognition of that. But I, I do find it odd that a company with the legacy and heritage of the Boeing company needs to bring in an outside third party to advise them on quality when they've made thousands and thousands and thousands of airplanes. Um, I, I would point out that uh, Admiral Donald, uh, who I do know personally and have an um, incredible regard for him, uh, is uh, also the chairman uh, of HII, is among the things that he was doing. He was also uh, uh, chairman of the Submarine League for a while. Uh, so he's uh, somebody who has been out and, and has been uh, active. Uh, Sash, uh, your your sense on this, and then Richard, your sense on it as well. I've got very little about that. Uh... Uh, to what Ron just said there, frankly. I mean, I think, you know, um, I, I really thought that Boeing was focusing on quality um, uh, all the time, but particularly after the uh, problems with 787, uh, which have been, you know, recurring, and after the two uh, max crashes and the, and the problems with ramping production uh, thereafter. I'm, you know, it's it, it's quite a U-turn to have to go back and say, we're going to do it all again, but with somebody different. But, you know, good luck. This is exactly, you know, uh, it's essential that Boeing's quality is not uh, questioned in any way by the by the market, by any of its stakeholders. Uh, and you know, as we were discussing earlier on, you know, it's a tragic that you know Boeing and safety has become some sort of meme. Uh, that really is uh, exactly what the company doesn't want. So that's going to be how this management and um, this admiral will be judged. You know, can you get rid of the idea of? You know, Boeing and quality as a meme, and actually uh, make sure that it's a given. Richard, um, this all reminds me of the great parable about the guy who like dropped his car keys, um, and he knows they're probably uh, on one part of the street, but he's looking in a completely different part because the light is on over at the different part, and it's so much easier to look for keys under that light. <laughs> this is dopey as hell. I mean, no disrespect at all to the admiral or to submarine culture, you know, which is as, you know, it's as rigorous as it gets technologically. I'm not so sure it has the same, you know, high volume manufacturing process emphasis that aircraft production does, but I'm sure he's a very qualified person when it comes to looking at the ins and outs. But what makes this dangerously stupid is that you've got this major cultural breakdown that's been plaguing Boeing for quite a few years now, where the links between people who are at the top and the people who actually, you know, design and build planes have broken down. Now, there are two great ways to fix that. One is you promote more of those people involved in aircraft design and production to positions of senior management rather than money people. Well, that would be hard. You know, the light's on over there. Let's go over there instead. Or alternatively, you could make an absolute point of, you know, maybe moving the headquarters back to where the work is done. Maybe having just a far more aggressive schedule of getting those top executives out there talking to people on the line saying, are you getting the resources needed 
to do what you do, be it manufacturing, design, or inspection. That would be great too. But yeah, you know, the light's on over there. It's far easier to just appoint an outside expert, make the optics good, and hope that somehow works out. This seems incredibly foolish to me. Do you think, let me let me just push back a little bit on that. Do you think that somebody who has four and a half decades or, or more of sort of an understanding of a highly functioning, high quality culture um, could prove helpful when they may need that external grafting into an ecosystem that maybe has has lost it. I completely agree with you on it. This is the reason why NRs travel the way they do all over the system. And he did. He never led just sitting at the Navy Yard and looking at what happened. He was out there and and about on a on a very very regular basis. D does does is there at least something to be said for bringing kind of a high high quality cultural approach back to the company? Could could that be useful if it's if it's properly melded with the right kind of people at Boeing? If he has the authority to say, "Hey guys, you're doing this all wrong. You need to change your culture." then <laughs> sure, it would be better if they simply said, oh my God, we've been doing this all wrong. We need to change our culture. Okay, you need to bring in some outsider who, an outsider who goes all through it and builds up everything. And then after 18 months or something says, oh boy, you need to change your culture. And then you accept that. That's really not likely at all. Because quite frankly, I think to anybody involved, and I speak to uh, a lot of people who've come from Boeing on a daily basis at this point, and they're all the the level of universal agreement, and including some people who are still within Boeing, is pretty consistent. There needs to be a restoration of those links between management and the actual core business. <laughs> okay, bring in an outsider who's super smart and who knows how to do things on you know at least in one discipline and probably many disciplines, I don't know. But if he needs to tell you that, and it takes God knows how long to do that, and you depend upon a management that is no longer rigid, that accepts this as a good thing to do, fine, take as long as you like. Uh, interesting. Sash, uh, you've uh, got your hand up. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on the issue of culture and the issue of sort of signaling and so forth, um, I'd, I'd point um, our listeners to an excellent interview done by the Financial Times this week with Angus Kelly, the chief executive of AirCap, which is the world's biggest aircraft lessor. And, um, uh, you know, Angus Kelly just says, Boeing can't afford another slip up. And, you know, this is the headline. I must set aside financial targets to focus solely on quality and safety. That's what the world's largest lesser is asking Boeing to do. I think that's actually how Boeing management will be judged ultimately. Does it do that? Or does it think we can appoint somebody and, um, uh, you know, carry on as normal with financial targets, um, you know, for in particular for cash flow two, three, four, five, uh, five years out? Um, uh, you know, that, that I, I don't think Angus Kelly would have done that if he didn't have a lot of buy-in from other lessors. These are the most important customers uh, uh, for Boeing, they clearly are uncomfortable about how Boeing management is, you know, has uh, has focused in the past and the effects that that's had on the company's quality. Indeed, uh, Ron, any uh, last point you want to make uh, on this? You know, I think I think Richard brings up a good point. Um, management has to be present, and that's you know something I've been saying for a while now. Um, and, you know, 
present is present where you're building your products, present on the manufacturing lines, uh, that sort of thing. You know, I think we've all learned through through the pandemic. Um, being there makes a difference. So you know, I, I think I think that's also part of it. Um, and the other piece, changing culture takes time. Uh, so even if the admiral has the latitude to make some serious recommendations, it's going to take time to to reverse course. Something that has happened over decades doesn't change overnight. Uh, and you know, for better or for worse, you know, the investment community and um, all the stakeholders involved have to have that patience. Uh, indeed. Uh, well, this is something we're going to we wish. Uh, Boeing and Admiral Donald well. Uh, this is an important endeavor, uh, and the stakes for getting it right are uh, incredibly high. I mean, I'm I'm still fascinated that folks are not quite grappling with the national security implications of this. Boeing is absolutely cri uh, critical uh, to the Pentagon and to the national security ecosystem, not just in neg uh, legacy products, but its capacity, um, and and. Um, you know, the, the derailing of this train is not just a commercial story. It is a national security story. Uh, and I'm, 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 I'm interested that, that we hadn't had more folks, uh, you know, at DOD sort of express concern, uh, about this, um, where, where I think it's, it's, uh, absolutely critical. Uh, yeah, if I could just right. quickly add to that, do you mind? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Richard. You know, just you're exactly right. And that's what's sort of the, the proof of the pudding, you know, that there needs to be major cultural changes because this commercial jetliner production thing isn't taking place in a vacuum. The company is also performing very badly and losing billions of dollars on defense programs. It's also emblematic of a disconnect between management and, again, the people who actually design and build aerospace and defense systems in this case. So, <laughs> you know, it will the findings of this group or this individual also apply? Will it be like one of those, oh, yeah, it's not just jetliners. <laughs> Your entire company is completely disconnected from reality, you know, I mean, in terms of how it's how it's managed. There's so much more than just commercial jetliners. Uh, indeed. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left, so we're going to go into lightning round. Uh, Sash, really quick. Um you know, Airbus numbers, uh, Dassault numbers, uh, as well as uh, Germany's uh, decision to drop opposition to ship Eurofighters uh, to uh, Germany. This is all your patch. Uh, you know, you weren't able to join us last week. Richard did yeoman service. But just give us kind of the one minute update on, on all of it, even though I think you touched upon Airbus numbers and, and Dassault numbers. But but kind of give us your sense also on the Eurofighter decision and what you what you make of it. And what does it mean for you know, the SCAF Tempest race, given that both of these uh, teams uh, would love to have the Saudis or the Emiratis or both of them uh, allied uh, with them in this endeavor. Yeah, OK. In fact, I'll focus on that because I think, you know, really we've, we've covered Airbus and uh, and Dassault. Um, uh, you know, so what, what did Germany do? I mean, Germany, uh, you know, officially approved um, export of, but it's reported as some air-to-air -air missiles. But of course, these are RSTs, so they are surface to, uh, they're surface-to-air missiles as well uh, to Saudi. 150. I mean, that's chump change normally for uh, for, for an export to, to Saudi. But it was then the political signalling from Annalena Baerbock, the um, uh, foreign minister who is from the Green Party, that Germany would no longer veto a UK-led export of Eurofighter typhoons. That was the really important thing. Um, and, you know, why, why did Germany do it? Well, uh, the Houthis 
uh, trying to shut the Red Sea to uh, commercial shipping just changes everything. All of a sudden, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, Saudi Arabia is by far the most effective uh, way to try to deal with the Houthis. Um, and uh, so, you know, Germany, I think, has, has sort of seen the light there. Yeah, this is it's, it's paradoxical. This is good for both Tempest and SCAF. It's good for SCAF because it keeps a German aircraft industry with volume um, working into the, you know, certainly the 2030s, because Typhoon production has been down at about a dozen aircraft a year. That's really, really low. It'll probably double over the next couple of years. Um, and that keeps Airbus Defence and Space in both Germany and Spain working well. But it's also clearly very good for Typhoon and hence for uh, Tempest, uh, because it keeps production rates at uh, BAE and at Leonardo up uh, at good rates as well, and hence provides the bridge to Tempest. So win-win. Um, and the um, I think the degree to which there may be now more uh, defence exports to Saudi, possibly uh, land systems, uh, is something that you know we're, we're only just beginning to explore because Saudi has been out of bounds for German defence companies for about a part of three years. Uh, and um, I think now you know the, the, dam, the dam gates are starting to open. Uh, indeed. And uh, Richard, uh, bring us home on uh, second B-21 uh, test flight, right? It's, it's starting to get it to a decent pace, aren't they? If they keep this up. Yeah, sure. It looks like, uh, you know, an astonishingly well-run program. I just hope, as we have hoped in the past, that there are lessons that come out of this using the, you know, the RCO, the Rapid Capabilities Office and whatever else. Uh, I hope there are a lot of lessons coming out of this. It's been a very long time, I think, for all of us uh, since we've seen a military aviation program this well run. Um, obviously, maybe one of the biggest threats is just a pattern of continuing resolutions, because uh, obviously, you know, anything that threatens funding increases for new programs can threaten the, you know, tempo of a new program. But so far, so good. And it's in contrast to its, uh, you know, stablemate GBSD, which continues to be uh, threatened by a non-maturity breach and serious time delays, too. So uh, at least one thing is going well. Uh, and uh, Ron, to end this on in terms of uh, the delays uh, on GBSD, I mean, first give us your sense on the test flight, but also uh, GBSD uh, delay and what does that mean uh, in a in a broader, bigger context? Yeah, I don't have a heck of a lot to add to what Richard said about B-21. I mean, it, it seems to be moving right along um, and the test flight was part of that. Um, and, then, and then on uh, GBSD Sentinel program, uh, so we had, you know, a non-McCurdy breach. Um, in the end, um, who cares? Uh, you know, the, the the cost of the program looks like it's going to cost more um, uh, for Northrop Grumman. Um, probably what that means is it's just more revenue for them when it when it's all said and done. Uh, I, I think when you look at the program uh, yeah, closer, the, the things that have been highlighted aren't necessarily the the missile system itself or the, the missile hardware, but it's a big engineering and development program and all kinds of stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a big complex program. Um, but at this point, I mean, you know, from a, you know, from an investor perspective, broadly on a non-McCurdy breach, who cares, right? I mean, not to bullet, you know, make small of it, but you know, it just is what it is, right? There, there's going to be more funding required for the program. So in the end, the program is going to be bigger than, than anybody thought if they, they they take it to its conclusion. As Air Force Secretary Kendall has said, right, this is one of the most complicated programs. It's a real estate program. It's a technology program. Uh, you know, it's an IT program. Uh, it's a heavy construction program. So, I mean, there are a lot of 
really incredible uh, elements to this uh, in a lot of ways that, that costs can increase, especially since between when it was awarded uh, and today, um, you know, we, we've had a pandemic and in, increased costs kind of across the board. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, the one thing I would say to Sash is uh, Congress did pass legislation uh, to prevent the United States from spending monies uh, to uh, exit uh, NATO uh, during the term of uh, the former president. Although I take your point, it it, it doesn't it, it could also there are a whole bunch of other ways to try to achieve that short of that. But God willing, that that that's an eventuality that doesn't happen. Guys, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, terrific conversation as always. Hope you guys have uh, a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Uh, and thanks to all of you for joining us and a special thanks to all of our sponsors for making this and our daily programs possible. We'll be back again with you tomorrow with our look ahead program. Until then, have a great day and we'll see you again tomorrow. Take care.